Welcome to another edition of our Law and Gospel devotional, a time that we take each week to look at God's two words throughout all of the scriptures. Usually the way we do that is by looking at the upcoming Sunday's lectionary texts and finding from one of those passages where we see those two most important words from God to us. In case you don't know who I am, my name is Eric Sorensen. I'm a pastor at Hillside Church in Roxbury, New Jersey, as well as a 1517 contributor in a whole host of ways. Good to be here with you again, as this week, of course, we have just celebrated Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And indeed, the texts that we're going to look at today are texts that have everything to do with the Easter season, because Indeed, Easter is not just one day, but it is a season in the church. So uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into our text for today. First of all, here are what the texts are for this Sunday. Basically, they all have to do with the church declaring that they are fools for Christ and asking the world whose fool they are. In case some of you are wondering, yes, that is that was actually a popular phrase. Oh, you know, kind of associated with the Jesus People movement, but um, and it was actually the phrase that John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Churches, would uh, say began to lead him to uh, become a Christian. But I, I say that I, I I think the phrase is actually apt for what the apostles were doing because all throughout the New Testament they are insisting that as crazy as it may sound, especially to the Roman world, especially to the Jewish and Gentile world of the time that Jesus rose from the dead. Indeed, he really did rise from the dead, and they just won't back down on it. And so the psalm for this weekend depicts all of creation praising God for the risen Christ, including animals, including plant life. You get these kinds of statements in the psalms, these sort of rhapsodic uh, writings depicting all of creation bowing down to the Lord. Uh, the uh, There's not actually an Old Testament text this weekend. There's actually just a, a text from the book of Acts depicting early church history. And of course, the passage that is depicted for us here is one of those that shows us, at least initially, the peace that the early church fellowship had as a result of believing in the resurrection. This is one of those passages where the church is kind of presented as having all things in common and singing kumbaya for a little bit. I will note that it doesn't take long, literally the next chapter in the book of Acts, before that begins to change and you begin to see tension rise. Uh, but initially there is peace between all and all are said to have everything in common. Then you get to our gospel text, which will likely be preached in many churches that observe the lectionary this Sunday. And it's all about uh, the uh, Apostle Thomas putting his fingers into Jesus's wounds. Remember, Thomas says, I won't believe it unless I can do that. And Jesus, out of his grace, shows up and says, go ahead, have at it. I want you to know with absolute certainty that indeed I am really risen from the dead. And our text today really is all about that as well. It comes from 1 John 1, 1 through 2, verse 2. And essentially, it's John just saying, I'm telling you, it's really real. He really is risen from the dead. At least that's the first part of it. And the second part of it really leads to the message that comes as a result of Jesus defeating death for sinners. So uh, let's get into the first part here. Uh, it could be summarized, we saw, we touched, we heard, because that's the kind of language John uses in his epistle right at the beginning. 
Now, oftentimes, of course, uh, religious people, and certainly Christians are not immune from this, are accused of believing things without no evidence, that we just take blind leaps of faith in order to believe what we do about the world, about God, about heaven and hell, etc. But the fact is, uh, the Christian church has always sort of taken the posture that, no, we have evidence. We base everything we believe on eyewitness testimony, on the fact that all of us saw him and touched him and heard him. This is the way John says it at the beginning of his epistle. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Notice how sensory that is. Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. That's the point, to give eternal life to people that flows from the one who's defeated death, which John says was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Again, he wants to emphasize that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. What makes the apostles' joy complete is seeing more and more people come to believe that indeed this Jesus is not just a crucified man claiming to be Messiah, but that he is crucified and risen Lord God man who is indeed the Messiah. That is what completes their joy. And so the church has always sort of taken this posture. I mean, you can look at Paul in Acts 26 as he's testifying to the risen Christ saying, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, it's not like any of this happened in a corner. You've heard about this. And he's testifying to very high governmental authorities as he says this. In 1 Corinthians 15, he insists that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And of course, the insinuation by mentioning that is that people could go and talk to him. You don't believe me. You don't believe Peter. Go talk to the 500 people that he appeared to at once. Just in case you weren't clear, the picture that's accompanying this slide is essentially what 500 people might look like. You know, it would be a risky proposition if Jesus didn't really appear to point people towards essentially 500 people that at least claimed that he appeared. That is, unless it actually happened. And this has always been the tack of the Christian church. The Christian church has said the resurrection is technically, from a, a philosophical standpoint, falsifiable. In other words, it's based on evidence. It's based on uh, real eyewitness testimony and experiences of people that saw, heard, and touched the risen Christ. Why is it so important that they touched him? Because it wasn't just an illusion. It wasn't just something that they wanted to be true. Indeed, it was something that they felt was true with their very hands. They ate with him. They saw him indeed eat. So the Christian testimony is based on that which is real, that which is experienced by the apostles. And yet John really hasn't gotten to his message yet. He's just proclaiming that indeed Jesus is the one who died and was risen. But there's a message he wants to get to, and that's all about what it means then to walk in the light of this risen Jesus. He says this, verse 5, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him 
While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, what comes to your mind when you hear a verse like this? Go ahead and take a moment to read it again. We are not to walk in darkness at all. If we have, we're to have fellowship with him while we're walking in darkness, well, then we don't practice the truth. My guess is for a whole lot of people, when they hear this kind of language, they assume that it means we, it's about our holiness. It's about our goodness. That in order to walk in the light, we need to be pretty darn awesome. Ah, if you were to only read these two verses without the surrounding context, it would be understandable that you go there. But follow me on the path to context because I think it could, for some of you, blow your mind a little bit. Because we are always looking for what we are naturally, sort of instinctively to do, uh, that instinctively believe that we have to walk uh, in the light, that, that is about our obedience. It's just natural. We're, we're naturally addicted to the law and we're looking for ways to, uh, to have some skin in the game. And so we assume that. But here's what John says right after those words. Verse 7, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Do you hear that? Do you see the connection that's being made? To walk in the light in this context is actually right here and now, not based on our obedience or our ability to say, not me, and somehow shift the blame for problems or sins. But in fact, it is when we deny that we are sinners that we are walking in darkness. It is by denying our need for someone to atone for us that we're walking in darkness. To walk in the light is to confess our sin. To walk in the light is synonymous with admitting you're flawed and failed, that you are indeed a sinner. Look at what he says in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And again, just in case you didn't get it, it wasn't clear. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, some will say to this, well, John must have been writing to people that were not converted yet or talking about the pre-conversion life. Ah, no evidence that that is the case at all. The grammar, the language, especially the rest of the letter, tell us abundantly that this is written to Christians. How do we walk in the light as Christians? By acknowledging that we are fallen sinners in need of redemption still, even today. Whether we just started walking the life with Christ, or whether we've been doing it for 75 years or longer, always, life is about confessing our need for forgiveness 
and getting the cleansing and washing that Jesus provides. That's what it looks like to walk in the light. I know it's very different than our natural instinct. Our natural instinct is to think in terms of obedience, of holiness. Not here. The first part is to acknowledge that we haven't walked in obedience and that we haven't pursued holiness as we ought to. So then the question is, well, why can God grant us such grace? He continues, chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am not writing these things. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. It's not as if Paul, it's not as if John is saying like, "Hey, I don't care if you sin. No big deal. Sin's not a big deal. God just sniffs at it." No. But here's what he goes on to say. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That is why. That is why we have a defense attorney, a divine defense attorney standing at the right hand of God, indeed actively interceding on our behalf, and his intercession is always answered positively. We're told he's doing that for us even by name. Jesus Christ intercedes for me. Jesus Christ intercedes for you. He is your divine defense attorney, your divine advocate before the throne of God the Father. That is why grace is extended to us. That is why we can be washed and cleansed of all sin. But he continues, why can God grant us this grace? Verse 2, because Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That's why God can grant us his grace, because Jesus Christ has taken our sins upon himself at the cross. As this Edvard Munch painting depicts, all of the world's sin is sort of being subsumed into him. It is coming to him, and he is taking that upon himself so that you might not face the penalty instead. His righteousness gifted to you, imputed to you, our sin imputed to him and the wrath of God taken out upon him instead of us. This is why we are recipients of grace. This is why when we sin and we do and we will and we'll do it many, many times in thought, word, and deed, whether we're conscious of it or not, this is why we don't have to fear because Jesus Christ has taken our sins upon himself we can come freely. As Hebrews says, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. It is no longer a throne of judgment that we have to fear. But God's throne is a throne of grace because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So come, release it, be free. You don't have to pretend. It's not as if he doesn't see anyway. He knows who you are and yet has redeemed you even still. Remember Romans 5 says very clearly, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies of God, Christ bled for us. And so the law and the gospel in this text, I think is pretty clear as we really are looking at a key confession and absolution text. The law, of course, is that word of God that shines the light on us so that we are drawn to confess. The law points out that we haven't lived up to God's standards and therefore need to acknowledge our need for forgiveness. And of course, the gospel declares to us that our sins have been washed away on account of Christ taking those sins upon himself at his cross. 
So that is a little bit about confession and absolution on this, uh, on this Tuesday after Easter. I pray that you have uh, been encouraged by that and blessed by that. I hope you have a great rest of your week, and I'll look forward to seeing you next week. God's richest blessings to you. Bye.